reading of God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 12. We'll read verses 21 through 28, which is the end of the chapter. Lend your attention. This is God's word. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whoever is slothful will not roast his gain, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon his word. Uh, Father, your words are good and uh, pure like silver refined in the fires of an earthen furnace, clean, true. And we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the eternal word when the fullness of time became man and made you known and who now sits and teaches and instructs through the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, that you would attend this reading and preaching of your word to build up your people, to retrieve the wandering, to strengthen the languishing, to correct those in need of correction, to encourage those in need of encouragement, Lord. All of those lovely promises which your word assures us you are doing by the reading and the preaching of your word, Lord, we ask that you would do and prepare us to receive with expectation and faith. Therefore, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. We spend one more Sunday on the Sixth Commandment, our final Sunday here. And you can turn in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal to the Shorter Catechism, if you'd like, on page 973. I believe it's also in the bulletin insert. And first, this is God's word. You shall not murder. Thus ends God's word. And then asking question 68, what is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. What is forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. We've been considering the sixth commandment um, primarily thus far as God's concern with 
biological life, uh, with the principle of, of life, um, protecting life and guarding life um, and calling for things uh, to be done to advance uh, physical life. Um, tonight, uh, we're reminded that um, the law is spiritual, uh, that the Lord isn't just interested in keeping our hands from each other's necks, as it were. Uh, he's also interested in uh, keeping our hearts from those dispositions which lead to death in the community of God and in those relations in which he's placed us, uh, but also uh, lead to a form of destruction and death uh, in the individual as well. And so we consider this evening two frames of the heart which are governed by this commandment not to kill and the positive command to pursue that which leads to life. And so we'll look at two spiritual commands, as it were, in the strictest sense. The sixth commandment forbids sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, and commands charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 and 31. The language that I used there is taken directly from the larger catechism, which highlights once again that it's not just violence or the withholding of necessary aids to life from others, which is governed and under the auspices of this commandment. It's also frames of the heart. So Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 31, verse 30 and 31, and 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and all slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul has similar lists like this in Colossians chapter 3, and a number of these, what we can call dispositions of the heart or frames of the heart, show up in Galatians chapter 5 as he details the works of the flesh and contrasts those with the works of the Spirit. I trust you can hear some parallels between those two things. But here we encounter a few what we might call deadly dispositions. Deadly dispositions to which the church is vulnerable, to which your heart is vulnerable, to which my heart is vulnerable. It's only three here. The larger catechism expands it, but I trust that you get a flavor for the frame of soul that Paul has in view. Perhaps it's better to see these not as individual items, which at any given moment we're vulnerable to, but rather a constellation of descriptions for a certain disordered frame that's all tinged with cruelty, tinged with malice. 
He sets forth here bitterness. What's bitterness? What does Paul mean by putting aside bitterness? It's that harsh resentment, that steeliness of soul that comes about when you think of another person or what's been given to them or what they've done to you or something along that line. You'll hear the phrase used in scripture, uh, a root of bitterness, which seems to suggest that something has either happened or an idea has taken place that has yielded a certain poison of the soul. The word for bitter and poison would have been very closely related. Uh, So this bitterness that Paul says is threatening our hearts. He also says anger and wrath. These words are tied together. It's that consuming fury towards another person for one reason or another. Bitterness, anger, wrath, and malice. Malice is a harsh sounding word, malicious. It means hatred, cruelty, animosity, and things like that. A few verses earlier, we should point out that Paul does make room for righteous anger. It would be simplistic to think that we're to go through our entire Christian lives never feeling any sort of righteous indignation over something that is worth anger. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity The principle that overrides the call not to be angry is the principle of being called to deal in truth with one another. And when one deals in truth, one in truth acknowledges that there are some things that are worth getting angry over. But you can hear even there that Paul says in such a frame we're vulnerable. Even righteous anger disorders the soul, as it were, and It's not good for any human being to last there long. You can hear that with Paul saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger, meaning it's best not to stay there. Get get out of that frame as soon as you can, whether by prayer or through reconciliation, as the case may be. He also says that in an angry frame, you're uniquely vulnerable to the devil's attacks. I'm not sure about your own experience with anger, but when I'm in an angry mood, I do not find myself making the best decisions. Destructive tendencies are near at hand. You're not thinking clearly. And such is something of what Paul sets forth in terms of our vulnerability, even in the midst of righteous anger. So even righteous anger is dangerous for us if it's not dealt with quickly. How much more than sinful anger, which so frequently encroaches upon the door of the church. We might also say that it's sinful anger that's the far more frequent situation, is it not? We convince ourselves that all of our bouts of anger are righteous, but in this we deceive ourselves. The far more frequent situation is that we get sinfully angry. We hold our persons, our wills in far too high regard and are willing to turn on any who cross our paths and seem to thwart them. 
We can lament then our tendency to justify our sinful anger by deceiving ourselves into thinking that it is righteous anger. Look at the actions which flow from this. It's not hands around necks, as it were, but it's tongues doing much damage. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. These are verbal sins. It's remarkable how these far more frequently characterize the church's sinful anger than actual fistfights. I've never been in a session meeting that has resulted in fistfights. I have been in session meetings that have resulted in yelling matches, and that is to no one's credit. Very frequently, this characterizes the life of the church. Perhaps you've been to congregational meetings that have whiffed more of disorder and cruelty than order and love. Oftentimes, our meetings look more like that scene from Fellowship of the Ring where everybody begins disagreeing and it simply ratchets up more and more and more until the whole thing has devolved into an unintelligible, chaotic spew of words. The second here, he says, put aside clamor, which is that sort of harsh yelling type speech. The second here, slander, seems to mean malicious speech, speaking ill of someone and not usually to that someone. We're vulnerable to this as well, aren't we? And what's worse is we dress this up in all sorts of Christian ways, don't we? Direct ill speech is rather rare when you come right out to another person and that will tell you, oh, so-and-so's a, just a dog, aren't they? No, we dress it up in concern. I'm concerned that so-and-so is a dog, aren't you? Hmm? <laughs> or we should pray for so-and-so. He's a real dog, isn't he? So we thinly veil this malicious speak with our Christian speak and somehow attempt to justify what we plainly know to be wrong. There's a sense in which the old adage holds good for our life together. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I've yet to break that out with my children, so I'm breaking it out on you. (laughs) But it's not just there that Christ leaves us. He calls us to more than just biting our tongue until it hurts, as it were. What does verse 32 say? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Again, we see that the Lord doesn't leave us with bare prohibitions. Don't be angry. Don't say bad things. Don't yell at each other. He highlights for us the path of light. Devote yourself to kindness towards one another. Devote yourself to compassion towards one another. To tenderheartedness towards one another. This is the vision of life which is opened up for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just a bare exhortation, is it? The call is rooted in what's been done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's what he says here plainly. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We've rehearsed a number of these things in our time in Matthew. Not only does he not leave us with a bare prohibition, he gives us a positive course of life, but he is constantly rooting what he calls us to in what he has done for us. That the Christian community has great reason to put aside anger, 
Consider how God has set aside his anger and wrath towards you, beloved. Consider how he placed it upon the Son to remove it from you. And yet we continue in anger towards one another. These things ought not to be. Consider how God has spoken good words to you and about you in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The most blessed word conceivable has been pronounced upon you, justified in Jesus Christ. That is a good word, beloved, that he has spoken about you. Have you merited such a word? I assure you, you haven't. And yet he has spoken to you a life-giving good word. And yet we speak ill to and about one another. Beloved, these things ought not to be. Will forgiveness be necessary among us? Absolutely it will. You will find much of the New Testament explaining to us that we will sin against one another. We will have need to forgive one another. But do we have great cause to forgive one another? Beloved, I assure you, we do. But it's more than just a rational syllogism here. Because you have been forgiven, forgive. You heard at the beginning, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who lives among us. It is the Spirit who is at work among us. This is more than, not less than, more than a rational argument. It is a spiritual argument, capital S, spiritual, meaning it's not just that you have great reason to forgive each other, to be kind towards one another, to be compassionate towards one another, because this is how God has dealt with you in Christ. This is the very manner of life that the Spirit is working among us. Thus, even in this call, we are called to walk by the Spirit and gratify not the desires of the flesh, to reap that harvest of sowing unto the Spirit as we set before us the excellencies of God, the excellencies of the things of God, and we look for that harvest of righteousness as he calls us to compose ourselves towards one another. Beloved, consider your hearts towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you find there some root of bitterness? Do you find there flickers of anger and wrath? Do you find yourself willing to speak ill to and about one another? Beloved, consider how God has dealt with you in Christ. Consider the life-giving path he calls us to in kindness, tenderheartedness, compassion, and consider if that has not been how he has dealt with you. That is how he calls you to deal with one another, beloved, and I assure you it leads to life. And the the other former contrary leads to destruction. The second frame that we can consider again is taken from the larger catechism. The sixth commandment commands a patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, and cheerfulness of spirit. I found this one particularly challenging. So we can turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Much like all of you as a modern American... Patience is not easy for me. I find it difficult to wait. I find it doubly difficult to wait with any semblance of grace and dignity. 
I tried to explain to my three-year-old, Michael, what it means to be patient. How would you explain to a three-year-old what it means to be patient? I don't think I did the best. I said it means to wait quietly. (laughs) It's not terrible, but it's more than that, as the larger sets forth. It's not just wait quietly, it's wait cheerfully as well. This is Christian patience. And James highlights some of the reasons we have to wait with quietness and cheerfulness. Starting in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This section in James, if you go just a few verses earlier in chapter 5, you get the sense that the congregation there is going through a great difficulty, particularly being mistreated by those who are in power in the world. That the church in the first century in particular was the object of great mistreatment. They were despised. They were maligned. You can read in James. You get the same sense from 1 Peter. You get the same sense from Hebrews. This was an active experience that came to them simply by virtue of being Christians. And that's a good thing for us to remember. We have a very charmed life in many ways. We've been the recipients of God's great kindness. We live very comfortable lives. I just got to spend 10 days the ocean with my family on a vacation. That's nearly unprecedented in Christian history. And I trust you've had similar experiences of one kind or another. We have received great kindness from the Lord, have we not? And as recipients of such great kindness, we can be tempted to grumble in the face of Difficulty, the type of difficulty which is part and parcel to the Christian life. The paradox of the Christian life is that we simultaneously find eternal life, find joy, and find struggle. Is that not so? In finding Christ, we simultaneously find forgiveness and a journey that's going to be very difficult until that declaration of forgiveness is made public for the whole world to know. Until then, we exist in a difficulty, a difficulty not unlike James' congregation was facing. And the call there is patience. You can hear it. Be patient, therefore, brothers. As an example of suffering and patience. Life is difficult. Just because we're Christians, we're not spared difficulty. In fact, a new layer of difficulty opens up for us. And first, being at odds with the world and the spirit of the age. But a difficulty that opens up even beyond that is the fact that we know that our God is sovereign. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority and all power. Thus, every difficulty has the double difficulty of receiving that difficulty directly from his hand. Does that make sense? 
There's a hardness about that. You could sort of bask in the bliss of ignorance before you were a Christian, saying, well, you know, that's fate, or that's karma, or that's whatever it is. But now we have to drink difficult cups as filled for us directly by the Lord. That's certainly what comes to mind as he highlights the life of the prophets. <laughs> These were his servants. These were his direct. They got to stand face to face with the Lord. Consider Isaiah. Consider uh, Jeremiah. Consider Hosea. On the one hand, ushered into magnificent glory, beholding Christ on his throne for Isaiah. Speaking with the Lord directly, Jeremiah very much picking up on a Moses-like form of communication with God. And yet, what did this set them up for? Great difficulty. Jeremiah was nearly universally despised. He wrestled deeply with the Lord. Lord, are you sure you want to send me? <laughs> because he knew the reality of difficulty that was opening up for him. But if there was difficulty opening up for them, there was also a promise sustaining them, was there not? And you hear James iterating that throughout. He talks about the patience which is enabled by understanding that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then he says that the judge is standing at the door. And then he talks about the Lord as compassionate and merciful. The difficulty that we experience is great, is it not? But the promise that we're supplied is greater still. The Lord is at hand, the Lord is coming. These are not platitudes. Certainly you can sympathize with people in the midst of deep suffering who are given these sort of Christian platitudes. But I assure you, these are not platitudes. James is not lobbing cliches at his congregation who's going through real difficulty to whom he is truly encouraging in patience. He is giving the very promise itself, the nearness of the Lord, beloved, the fact that Christ is coming and we will be with him face to face. The fact that in the Lord Jesus Christ we have seen more clearly even than the prophets who God is as compassionate and merciful. Beloved, this is the source of our strength in the face of great difficulty. And so it's no wonder that the Westminster Larger instructs us as an extension of the sixth commandment, not just to a patient bearing of the hand of God, but also to a quietness of mind and a cheerfulness of spirit. Because the same hand that is orchestrating the difficulties for us is the hand that sent forth the Lord Jesus Christ to make us his own. Such that even James' image talks about the life which is issuing forth. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. 
James uses an organic metaphor to cultivate the patience in us as we are confident that what is being worked by these trials is not futility, it is not destruction, but rather it is life, beloved. That's what fruit is. Perhaps it would be too much of a leap to marry this image of fruit to the fruit of the Spirit, but I think it works theologically. that what's being cultivated in the midst of great difficulty under the sovereign hand of God, a greater portion of faith and hope and love is he teaches us not to place our hope in this futile world, but to root it in the Son of God and the new creation and the promise of being with him face to face forever. Beloved, the same hand which orchestrates the trial is orchestrating the life, I assure you. These are not empty exhortations unto patience, unto cheerfulness, and unto quiet. They are exhortations rooted in a confidence towards God, established in the Son, and played out time and time again in his dealings with his people. For you know the testimony of Job, beloved, that the difficulty which befell him was not because he was forsaken by God. The difficulty which befell him was an occasion, indeed the stage, upon which the glory of God was playing out. And his story ended in abundance. That's where James would have us fix our eyes on the abundance which is coming with that great feast that we get to taste of every single week as we declare that this is the cup, this is the bread, this is a taste of the meal which we'll enjoy with our God forever when Christ returns at the table of abundance. Beloved, the call to endure in patience, the call to endure in quiet, the call to endure in cheerfulness is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes as we reflect upon his promise to return. It is a posture that leads to life as it is rooted in the God of life who has made a way for us into eternal life. May these frames govern our hearts as we more and more reflect upon the portion which has been given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God, we do give you thanks once more for your word and your kind dealings with us. We give you thanks for the testimony and the witness of Scripture, how your servants have endured much, and how you have worked in them a steadfastness and a faithfulness which stands as a great example unto us. How you have assured us that your promises will not fall void. How you have assured us that blessing is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that our life together would be lived in the light of these very great and precious promises as we dispose ourselves by the working of the Spirit and kindness and compassion towards one another and we dispose ourselves to the difficulties of this world in cheerful hope, knowing that Christ will return for us and that even now he is overcoming all things for our good. We thank you for these things and pray them in Christ's name. Amen.